so we've been using Adrian in a, in a project called Monkey Bar, which essentially is looking at the issue of monkey malaria. This malaria parasite is endemic in certain species of monkey in Southeast Asia, but it's also possible for humans to get naturally infected with the parasite. But in the last decade or so, I mean, mainly with the arrival of new diagnostic methods, uh, we've begun to realise that actually these aren't sporadic cases, and there's a lot more Nolzai malaria out there in humans than we previously thought. And in fact, quite a lot of malaria which we thought wasn't Nolzai um, actually was in the past. I think more of a particular issue at the moment is there's certain parts of the world, like Malaysia and Borneo, where we're working at the moment, where we're seeing quite a rapid increase in the number of cases being reported. And so one of the things we're trying to work out in the Monkey Bar project is what are the drivers, what are the reasons behind these increases in cases. How how do drones come into this research? Well, one of the central hypotheses that we're actually exploring, one of the sort of central hypotheses that we're exploring in the project is that the increase in cases is really a reflection of changing land use and land cover. And in particular, one of the things we want to explore is the effect of deforestation on disease transmission. So we think it's likely, for example, that as the forest cover changes, the various populations of monkeys, of humans and of mosquitoes, their dynamics also change and the interactions between those populations change. So one of the things that say we're exploring as a hypothesis is that it's land use change which is driving this change in, in, in disease transmission. So you, you mean that human beings and wildlife are losing their natural habitats, they're all being they're all, all moving to other areas and, and this could throw them together? Well I think probably in a situation where if you have a change not only in the amount of forest, uh, but in the nature of forest, so forest becomes increasingly fragmented. So you have wildlife populations, including monkeys, which are getting squeezed into smaller spaces um, and often will get squeezed into locations which are closer to human populations. And also you have a, you know, you have a forest use angle, so people are using the forest and living close to it. So if you have these three major population groups of mosquitoes, monkeys and humans, kind of all on top of each other instead of being apart, then obviously the disease dynamics are going to change. So what were you using the drones to do in this particular case? Well, again, sort of going back to the central hypothesis of the project, I mean, we are particularly interested in land use and land cover and how that affects the dynamics of of penolzite transmission. And so what we needed to do within Monkey Bar is have a way of, A, producing extremely detailed land cover maps for our field sites, but more particularly a way of updating those frequently so that we could keep track of changes in land cover as they happened. And some of those transitions can be extremely quick. So um, that's why we thought a drone would be most appropriate for our purposes. What would the alternatives have been? The traditional alternatives would be to use satellite data. And in fact, that's something we've done in the past. In in many projects, we've used satellite data uh, to produce our maps. And the original plan within Monkey Bar was also to use satellite data. But we realised actually quite quickly that we couldn't depend on satellite data for our mapping. There's certain constraints in using satellite data. Uh, the main one being that you can't always get the sort of data that you want when you need it. So the data might not be detailed enough spatially. Uh, they might not be available for the dates that you need them. And even if they are available, you might find they're covered in cloud. I mean, that's something that we come across a lot 
um, in tropical areas in particular. There might be lots of data available, but trying to find data without clouds in them um, can, can be really difficult. So a drone is a, is a nice way of getting around some of these issues because you've got lots more control, essentially, over how you collect data and when you collect data and the sort of data that you collect. And one of the great advantages of using a drone is you can actually fly beneath the clouds. And so cloud contamination, as we call it, doesn't become such a big problem. To me, a drone does sound like an ideal research tool. Were there any pitfalls? Yes, I mean, I think there's probably plenty of pitfalls. Um, so it's a question really of balancing the pros and cons. But, I mean, yes, there are cons um, being realistic. I mean, it's a small sort of light aircraft. So if the weather's not good, you can't use it. So if it's too windy, uh, if it's raining, you won't be able to use your drone. Um, where we work in the tropics, if it's too hot, sometimes it has effects on how we can use the drone too. And again, like any piece of kit that you're using in the field, things happen. So you get malfunctions. Um, we've crashed the drone a few times as a result of that. It can be a problem finding places to take off and land, especially if you're working in places with lots of trees and forest. So it's not uncommon to crash into things now and again, um, especially when you're trying to land. And so there are sort of practical considerations. I think the two main sort of broader limitations when it comes to drones are firstly the sort of cameras that they tend to use and secondly sort of limited spatial coverage which you can achieve each time you do a flight so in terms of cameras the main issue is that most drones carry just a, a regular digital camera so they take very nice color pictures and you can produce beautiful air photographs on that basis but they don't contain data which you would get from other satellite sensors for example data from the near-infrared part of the spectrum, which are very useful for, for classifying land cover, for example. So there's a limitation in terms of instrumentation, but I think also more seriously there's a limitation in, in just how much area you can cover with a drone, realistically. What sort of an area can you cover? Well, you're constrained essentially by battery life. So again, it, depend, it will vary from, from drone to drone. Um, but the drone we're using, for example, we can typically fly for about 40 minutes at a time before we before we change batteries. And that might involve maybe mapping one kilometre square, something like that. Um, so there's a limited amount you can do in one flight. Um, and so what that means is you tend to have long days in the field. I mean, if the weather's good, um, that is, you have long days in the field where you do repeated mapping um, of different areas by swapping out the batteries. But so, you know, even in a single day, you might only be able to achieve five or six flights. So maybe we're talking about, you know, five or six lots of one kilometre square. So, so, I mean, that might five, sound five square lot. kilometres. Mm -hmm. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I mean, that might sound quite a lot. But I mean, obviously, if you're working, in, <laughs> if you're trying to map large areas, um, the actual mapping process involves a lot of fieldwork and uh, fairly intensive fieldwork, too. And I think for those two reasons, essentially, so you've got the limitation around the instrumentation and you've got the limitation around spatial coverage. I think for those two reasons, drones will essentially always be quite a niche application. I mean, they will suit certain settings, certain applications more than others, but they certainly won't sort of take over from remote sensing. I mean, there'll, there'll always be a need. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's okay. Let's, let's start that one again. I'll, I'll, lead, I'll lead into that with a question, actually. Mm. Is this um, quite a unique example of the use of drones in research, or are they actually more widespread? 
I think it's okay. Hang on, I'll give me a minute to think about that. Do you want to ask it again or? Um... No, no, unless you want me to rephrase it. I think. Well, I mean, can I can I finish with the point I was actually going to make yeah, before? Sure. Because it actually links to the previous. So basically, what I'd said was there's these two major limitations around the instrumentation and the and the the, the coverage. Um, and I was going to lead in to say that's why actually drones are a bit of a niche and they won't replace remote sensing and that sort of thing, which I think is a useful point to be able to make. Okay. Do you want um, to? Could you just make that point again? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I think really for those two reasons that I just mentioned, you know, one about the sort of limited. Uh, instrumentation options for drones and the other is about the limited amount of space that you can cover at any one time. I think for those two reasons drones really at the moment at least are a bit of a niche sort of application that they suit certain projects and certain questions um, but they don't really replace sort of traditional satellite based remote sensing. Is this project the only project that's used drones? I'm sure it's not. I mean there's not much um, out there which has been published in terms of demonstrating how drones are used but I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are currently using using them for all sorts of purposes so I think there will be and I know of um, not necessarily in the scientific sort of realm but more in the sort of applied realm um, drones being used fairly frequently now for mapping so that might be mapping land cover in the same way that we are it might be mapping infrastructure or, or houses etc so I think there's a there's a, a, a big potential application in that area, um, particularly when you're thinking about, for example, emergency situations where you have to uh, deploy interventions and you need a sort of a very up-to-date, real-time assessment of what conditions on the ground are. I think that's certainly one area where we'll see um, more and more work in this field. There's also, I mean, I haven't seen any really good examples of this, but it's something you always hear of anecdotally. Um, there are examples of uh, people trying to use drones actually to directly deliver goods, you know, whether they're drugs or, or vaccines or supplies uh, in areas where the sort of the infrastructure is, is weak. So sort of Amazon style deliveries for, for drugs and vaccines. And I know that's been tested. I haven't seen any evidence that's, that's gone to scale yet, but I think it's a fairly exciting development. You've talked about um, technological limitations, but are there any other limitations? For example, how do people react when they see the drones flying overhead? That's an interesting question. We've never had any, any problems in terms of um, people reacting neg negatively to us using a drone. I mean, we've always been fairly careful where we work to, to sort of do the right thing and go through the right channels. So that involves sort of working with people at all levels uh, to make sure that people are aware of what you're doing um, and aware of the reasons why you're using a drone. So that might be, for example, first of all, liaising with the Civil Aviation, civil aviation Authority, um, other people in charge of regulation, but also on the ground that means working with people in the villages, etc. So they're not surprised when you turn up into a village with your drone. But we've had, on the, you know, on the whole, very positive reactions to a drone rather than negative ones. So did you find that people wanted to take part and have a look at them and, um, and try flying them themselves? <laughs> uh, yes, there has been uh, one or two occasions where, that, where that's happened. And we have had one incident where a 10-year-old girl has actually launched the drone for us. We couldn't persuade her not to. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's quite a tactile thing because it looks like a toy. Um, and uh, I think people are quite keen to get their hands on it. And how much paperwork is involved? I think it depends 
if you're talking about regulation and approvals, that sort of thing, I think it depends where you work. Um, I think there will be some places, for example, where it will be impossible to work. I mean, I know places in Asia where it's still illegal to carry a GPS as a foreigner. So um, I don't envisage using a drone in that country anytime soon. But I think most countries are a stage where they're not quite sure um, what their regulation should be when it comes to drones. So it is highly variable. We've had a good experience to date, actually, in the Philippines and in Malaysia, where we tend to be using the drone. But it did actually take just as long, probably, to work out what the regulatory framework was as it was to actually then you know, complete the permissions. So sometimes it's a question of uh, trying to find out how the system works as much as actually going through the process of getting permissions. Um, but we haven't had any, any problems to date. Sorry, I've just got to... <clears throat> I've got something um, flying overhead here. Just give me a second. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, I've pretty much covered most of the questions I wanted to ask you, but uh, can we... Um, well, uh, some of the questions you suggested, it was about how you personally felt about what you were doing. So um, can, I, can I talk about some of those? Yes. Oh, yeah, if I can. <laughs> what questions well, are they? <laughs> but we've talked um, about, but, so we talked about um, whether, whether local people worry about privacy. Is that something mm -hmm. you worry about? Sorry, say that, say that again. I was, I was distracted by something just then. <laughs> we talked about whether local people are worried about privacy. Is that something you worry about? It's a good question. I wouldn't say it's something I worry about, but I, I think it is a question. It is a question of doing things the right way. So there might well be people out there who are willing to cut corners and you know throw a drone up into the air without really thinking about the consequences. But I think there's a sort of onus on us as public health professionals to go through the proper channels. So we've already talked about regulation and going through the right channels in terms of regulation. But I think there's also an ethical angle to, to some of this. And we've always been keen to stress the use of our drones within our ethics applications. For example, we want to be transparent about the way we're using drones and the reasons for using drones. You also talked a bit about technological limitations that you think might limit the use of drones in research. Can these technological obstacles be overcome in future? Yes. I mean, I, I, I think we're at a stage where we're seeing a sort of rapidly emerging market. There's many people out there making drones, uh, sometimes making them for quite sort of specialised applications. But I mean, like with any technology, we'll see things change. We'll see the price coming down, and, you know, the basic price of drones coming down. We'll see their specifications improve, so they'll probably get bigger, they'll be able to fly further. Um, and we'll probably see a, a greater sort of variety of potential sensors or instruments that we can load into these drones, which again would be useful for us. So I suspect that in you know five year five or ten years time, you know, the sort of the, the, the drone market will be quite different from what it is now. So some of those limitations which we're facing at the moment, hopefully by then we will have resolved. Yes. Now this is a bit of a difficult question, but have you got any ideas, wishful thinking ideas, of how you'd like to see drones being used in research in an ideal world? So if you were to look ahead to five years' time, what kind of things would you like to see happening? I can't, I, that is too difficult to answer. Okay, <laughs> it's a good yeah. question. 
No, that's a good question. Um, and if, if you gave me halfway, half an hour to go away and think about it, I might come up with an answer. But it's not, there's no, there's no easy answer to that one because, um, yeah, it's a good question, but too difficult. <laughs> sure. Well, if you, if you think of some, if you think of a quick answer to that one, I'll call you up again and we can record it. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, there's too many unknowns because, I mean, we just, we don't know in five years' time whether we'll be able to use drones anymore. I mean, you know, the, the, the world changes. So um, I'm not sure I really want to be that speculative. Why would you not be able to use them in five years' time? Oh, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that as a lead into oh, the okay. Just, yeah, <laughs> okay, well, lastly, I just want to know, did you have fun doing this? It's a lot of fun. Um, it's one of those things which starts as fun, but actually rapidly becomes slightly mundane. So yes, in the in the, in the first few uh, days, you know, the first few stages of, of playing around with a drone and sort of experimenting with it and trying to work out the limitations, you know, the, the sort of parameters under which you can use it. It it was a lot of fun. We did a lot of pre-testing, and uh, it's always great being in the field, of course, which is which, which is a bonus. But as I say, it's one of those things which maybe after 10 or 20 flights, the sort of novelty wears off and you just realise it's just another way of collecting data. Um, and it's another way of spending long, hot days in the field when you might want to be somewhere else. So, yeah. Great, that's perfect. Um, now, the one thing we haven't really done is you haven't given me a quick outline of what the Monkey Bar project was and what you found out. Um, we kind of led into it in a roundabout way, but would you mind... Giving me a quick synopsis where you actually say Monkey Bar Project is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we're only just, we're, yeah, no, I'll do that, but we're sort of not far into the project, so it's not like we've found much. Ah, okay, um, well, yeah, even that would be useful to know. I don't think we made that clear. That's a project that's just starting up. So, so if you could just tell well, me. Well, it's not, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about the Monkey Bar Project. Well, the Monkey Bar project is essentially a multidisciplinary project, which is addressing this whole issue of the changing epidemiology of, of plasmodium nozzi. And because it's a, a sort of disease system which involves a variety of factors or stakeholders, if you like, you've got the mosquitoes, you have the monkeys and you have the people, we have different groups within the project working on all of those different aspects. So we have primatologists, for example, who are tracking macaque monkeys using GPS collars, and we're, we're mapping those distributions. We have people, anthropologists and social scientists, who are working more on the human side of things, trying to work out what people do and where they go, and there's a certain amount of GPS work involved in that. And then we have a whole group of people trying to characterize the sort of mosquito sort of uh, side of the equation. So what are the major vectors involved in transmission and what is what are the sort of relevant behaviors where do they hang out and where do, where do they bite and what do they bite do they just bite monkeys or do, or do they bite people too and so we have all of these different elements in play um, and then what we're trying to do from the land use point of view is collect the sort of contextual data the changes in land use which are happening while all of these other things are going on in terms of changing uh, patterns of vectors or changing movements of monkeys or changing movements of people Great, thank you. And one final thing, you've talked a lot about a particular parasite. I haven't really caught the name that clearly, and I wonder if you could give me a bit of a, a more basic explanation of um, the, the what the parasite is, um, just yeah, to explain that it's actually involved in malaria transmission and in this yeah, particular so, area yeah. of the world. Okay. 
No, no. So, so yeah, I mean, so our picture focuses on this particular parasite called Plasmodium nolzi. Um, it's not traditionally seen as one of the sort of four main malaria parasites which affects humans. It's kind of like a new kill on the block. So we've known for a while that humans can get it um, sort of in a, in a natural setting. But we've always assumed that those cases would be, you know, fairly one-off or, or, or fairly sporadic. Um, what, was the, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> That's okay. I think... Um... You were trying to explain the, the nature of the parasite, the specific parasite yeah. you're looking at. Um, so, yeah. You haven't actually I mean, said so, what it's called, I don't think. Okay. Mm. I think, well, I did just say, but I can say it again if you like. Yeah, okay, if you don't mind, just I, I've got a few examples of it. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, the parasite of interest to us is, a, is this parasite called Plasmodium nolzi. Great. And how many people would you say are actually being affected by this parasite? Oh no! I wish I had the data to hand. <laughs> I can't tell you off the top of my head because okay. I'm not actually that's why I have the data with me. Don't worry about it. But, but we are. I mean, um, if you gave me five minutes, I could look it up. Um, but, I, th uh, I think we're all right. But could, could yeah. you tell me, are people actually dying as a result of this parasite? Yes. I mean, the interesting thing about this parasite is a we have sort of in the past underestimated. Uh, the sort of public health significance of the parasite, um, mainly because we haven't had the diagnostic tools to be able to separate out this parasite from all the other types of malaria out there. But now we have these more sensitive diagnostics, A, we've realised there's a lot more out there than, there than we thought there was, but B, that this is an increasing problem, um, particularly in some, not everywhere, but in some parts of the world. So where we're working in Borneo, for example, this particular species of parasite, Plasmodium nolzi, is now the most common form of malaria in humans in the state of Sabah. So we're talking about, you know, potentially a major public health issue. And if you couple that with the fact that actually it's not a particularly nice infection to get, you know, it can cause very severe disease, it can cause death, um, then it's a combination of very high case numbers um, and fairly uh, severe outcomes at times means we have essentially quite an important public health issue here. That was perfect. Okay, then I think I think we're done. Thank you so much for your time.